I'll ask you to turn to Matthew chapter uh, 14. Matthew 14, we'll begin at verse 13. One of the wonderful things about the four Gospels and the narratives and stories throughout them is that each of the Gospels present the person and work of Christ in a unique way with particular distinctives. It's why we have four of them. Matthew and Luke give us the birth narratives of Christ. It's only the Gospel of John that likens Jesus to the Word, that divine logos, the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's unique to John's Gospel. Mark, perhaps more than any of the other Gospel writers, emphasizes that radical call to discipleship, uh, denying oneself, uh, cross-bearing and following after Jesus. Uh, Only Luke provides us with the stories of the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. But there are some stories that for reasons to our Lord, he desired to include in all four Gospels. And as we continue in Matthew's Gospel, we have come to one of those stories, perhaps one of the most well-known stories in all the Bible, the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, this story is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. Kind of unique. This is a story that would have uh, circulated those who experienced this event, the thousands who were at that event throughout Judea, throughout Galilee, and indeed it has been preserved in God's Word and it comes uh, to us. So listen now to God's Word, Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, that is the death of John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. The images of of fish and bread are very significant, very prominent throughout uh, the scriptures and throughout the gospels. Uh, They recall times in which God very powerfully uh, acted uh, among his people to provide for them. We think of the prophet Elisha, recorded in 2 Kings chapter 4, who fed 100 hungry men with barley loaves. And just like we read here in that story, there was a surplus of food uh, afterward. Uh, even more so, we think of the abundant provision of manna uh, for Israel in the desert during the wilderness wandering. But it seems to me perhaps of greatest significance is what Jesus says here in verse 19 as we think about 
bread and fish. Jesus took the loaves and fish. He looked up to, to heaven and he said a blessing. He prayed and then he broke the bread and gave it to the disciples. That throughout the history of the church, as we come to these words, it transports us forward to the end of the gospel in Matthew, where Jesus does something very similar. The night before his crucifixion, what does he do? He's with his disciples. He takes bread, almost uh, verbatim the same words. He breaks the bread and he distributes it to his disciples and says, take, eat, this is my body. There's something deeper about the significance of this bread. Uh, the same is true of the symbol of fish in the scriptures. Uh, we know from church history as early as the first century, uh, the, symbol, uh, the simple symbol of the fish became a way of identifying fellow Christians. Archaeologists have uh, identified this in ancient prisons, ancient churches, in the catacombs of Rome, this very simple fish. In fact, they used the Greek word, in the New Testament for fish, which is ichthus, and made out of it an acrostic. And so they used each letter in the Greek word for fish to spell out a phrase, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. The fish is, is significant as a symbol. Uh, come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Fishers of men, effective with catching people. Uh, we've learned about the parable of the net, like the kingdom of God, the net is thrown into the sea, gathers fish of all kinds compared to the righteous and the evil. Uh, we heard, read earlier in John at the end of his gospel, uh, the disciples recognizing the resurrected Christ on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there he is with a charcoal fire. And on it are those items, fish and bread. And so these symbols of bread and fish, uh, the feeding of the multitudes, it's a reminder not only that God's people and all people are dependent upon that which is outside of themselves. We eat, we must eat in order to live, that our existence depends upon God. But even more than that, this meal unites these people together. They are sharing in this amazing event and it's uniting these people together. And most importantly, it's uniting them around a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. And what these people experienced face to face uh, about two millennia ago, feeding upon Christ and what he provided is what we do when we gather together. We feed upon his word and upon his uh, presence as his people. It is Christ that is to unite us together as the people of God. And the first thing that we are drawn to in this story is the character of Christ himself. The very character of our Lord. We are told in verse 13 that he withdrew from there to a boat, in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. He has gained a reputation and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. In Mark's account, which I think will be helpful to put your finger there, in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, we're told that Jesus had said to the disciples there, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a, a while. And it says, for so many were coming and going that they had no leisure even to eat. 
It's very clear one of the reasons that Jesus and the disciples are withdrawing and seeking a quiet, desolate place is because the demands of their service, their ministry, their itinerant teaching and traveling, and their human limitations have surfaced. They, they are worn. They are tired. They are stretched. They need rest. Some of us in our lives, perhaps even this very morning, feel what the disciples felt, worn or tired, in life or in service. And our Lord gives us a pattern to help us find rest. We have day for work, but we have night for sleep and rest. We have six days for labor and service, but we have a day set apart for rest and renewal. Jesus not only knows our limitations, but what, what do we celebrate at Christmas? Christ taking on human flesh, entering into those limitations. Our Lord Jesus is, in a sense, in the trenches with his people, always. And so when you are worn, one of the lessons from this text is remember who is with you. It's what makes all the difference in this story. In fact, as the story unfolds, the more the disciples come to realize how dependent they are upon the presence and resources of Christ. And I think the story in some ways can serve as a metaphor for the whole Christian life. As time moves on, as you live the Christian faith, challenges, demands may increase, and the need for dependence on Christ becomes all the more uh, clear. And indeed, the drama of this story begins to heighten because what happens? Their pursuit after rest is not met with a place of solitude and quiet. That was their purpose. That was their intent. But rather, they are met with a crowd of needy and hungry people. What an important practical point for any servant of the Lord Jesus our devotion to the Lord and our sense of his presence is no less significant, no less affecting when we are in the very midst of serving others than it is when we are alone and quiet with his word open before us and in prayer and communion. I grew up in a home and in a church that stressed very much in a very effective way the importance of daily devotional what they called quiet times. I've benefited from this throughout my Christian life, and I'm sure many of you have as well. It's usually with a cup of coffee, Bible's open, it's a time of sort of uninterrupted time. It's a time set aside. But life is not one extended time of uninterrupted solitude and quiet. You've probably noticed this. Uh, that's where the disciples were headed, to that desolate place to have solitude and refreshment with Christ. But it is interrupted. That's the word I'm choosing, interrupted. Uh, Calvin, John Calvin, uses the word an unexpect, unexpected opportunity. That's kind of optimistic, I think. Life paths, our life pursuits, uh, man's plans, they're oftentimes interrupted. 
And it's in that very interruption that we see this tremendous contrast here as the demands increase between the character of our Lord Jesus Christ and the character of the disciples. The character of Christ and our character oftentimes. We're told in verse verse 14 that when he and the disciples came ashore, they saw a great crowd. And it says Jesus was frustrated. No, that's not what it says. He came ashore, he saw the crowds, he got back in the boat, and he, no, it's not what happened. He saw the crowds, and it says he had compassion. Key word in the text. When our energy is sapped, or we are worn thin, it's oftentimes not our best that comes through. It is oftentimes something else, angst or frustration, anger, criticism. But Jesus, when Jesus is pressed, when Jesus' energy is getting depleted, when he feels weak, the gracious and good heart of Christ comes out. Compassion comes out. What a remarkable thing. This strikes me, this compassion of Christ. Because remember, it's the crowds. It's not relatives. It's not close friends. It's not his own 12 disciples. It's the crowds. Who are the crowds? Yet he sees them and he has compassion. If we're going to be compassionate, isn't it naturally toward those we know? Personally, that's the natural compassion. This is supernatural. Compassion is... Very similar to mercy, but it's distinguished from mercy. A judge may pardon mercy to a guilty party, but feel nothing for that person, no affection at all. That's grace, that's mercy. Uh, Compassion, there's another element. Compassion is suffering with. It's a person's heart breaking for another uh, we might sense this more in, in Mark's account, in Mark 6, uh, which says, as Jesus saw the crowds, he felt compassion for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And perhaps it's important that we put ourselves in the shoes of the crowd, not just uh, in the shoes of the disciples. We need the compassion of Christ. We are that needy, uh, hungry crowd. But how do the, re- how do the disciples respond Verse 15, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, the day is now over, send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Send the crowds away. We have done enough, we've done what we can. First of all, there is an an abruptness in the way that they address Jesus. They do not address him as they normally do, as Lord. Some suggest that the disciples at this point are upset, in fact. They literally tell him the time of the day, it's evening, where they are, it's a desolate place, there's nothing here, there's no food. Three, therefore, what he should do, send them away. It's late, we don't have sufficient resources, send the people away. And at a certain level, this makes sense, doesn't it? The disciples are hungry. The crowds are hungry. It's the end of the day. 
Their resources are very limited. What else can the disciples possibly do to meet the needs? What more is there to do? And Jesus responds in verse 16, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. We only have five loaves and two fish. Now, I want to bring John's account, John chapter 6, into uh, this story because his account provides a perspective that I think helpful at this point. John 6, 5 and 6. Amidst the crowds and amidst the needs, Jesus, we're told, turned to Philip and said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? And the text says he said this to Philip to test him. So there's something underneath going on. There's work going on beneath here in terms of Jesus' relationship to his own disciples and how he is testing them. And sometimes in the life of the church and in our own personal Christian lives, in the midst of surrounding needs or our own limitations, the Lord Jesus tests his people. Perhaps he is testing us as his people. Perhaps we are in a season or you are in a season of testing. Philip says, well, 200 denarii, that is 200 days worth of wages, would not buy us enough food to provide for the people. Philip's being tested, and I think we can say if he were being graded on this test or quiz, he would have received an F. Not because what he states is false. Uh, Philip sees correctly the needs. He sees correctly their limitations. But I think it's what he does not see. It's what he fails to see and believe that is the presence and sufficient power of Christ himself by which he fails here. The disciples had seen Jesus do many miraculous works. We are told even in Matthew's gospel here that Jesus healed many people on this very occasion. When we are confronted with needs, the needs of the world, our own personal needs, needs of the church, I think the question that surfaces out of this story and text is what weighs more heavily on the scale of reality in your mind? Is it the needs? Is it your limited resources? Is it your own limited limitations? Or is it the greatness of who Jesus Christ is? What weighs for you in the midst of needs? Our limitations and our own weaknesses, or is it the greatness of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ? That's where trust comes. There's a theological question in this story. In what do we trust? That's what Jesus is seeking to pull out of his disciples. Oftentimes, what really am I trusting in for the massive needs of the world or of the church? What do you do when the needs are so great and the resources seem so sparse? I remember a few years ago, 2015, uh, while on a short-term mission trip in South Africa, I was driven by a host pastor to a very rural area outside of Johannesburg, about an hour and a half outside of the city. And he took me to this area to specifically meet a pastor who had traveled to this area to minister to these people in this rural area for the very purpose that the people there were impoverished. 
They did not have the means to support any pastor, let alone themselves. It was indeed a kind of extreme poverty. And I went out and met him. It was a rainy day, I remember, and he drove me to his church, to the place that the congregation gathers for worship. And I remember the church building. It was all bricks, and it was not yet completed. It had been built, being built for the last seven years. And you could see the outside walls, and at no point did the walls either come up to my waist at, that point, at one point or to my shoulders. So they had much more work to do. They had been working on it for seven years. And he said, when we get enough resources, we buy a pallet of 50 bricks. And I said, uh, do you have someone who's building this? And he pointed to himself. He's building it. Seven years and much more time, much more time to see that building completed, perhaps half uh, the size of, of this sanctuary that we are in. In the face of overwhelming need, few resources, we are tempted to believe, as the disciples did, that we have little to nothing to offer. Jesus tests his people. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Why does he do that? Perhaps so that we will know what it means to see the strength of Christ in the midst of our own weakness. To see what his provision looks like in the midst of our poverty and limitations. What a central point throughout the story of the scriptures. The, the, the strength of Christ in our weakness. We see it through the life of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, when Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul says, For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weakness and hardship and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, I'm strong. That seems paradoxical. It doesn't at first make sense. But trust in this story of the feeding of the, of the thousands, trust here is really about recognizing and believing where our strength really comes from, where our resources really come from, how needs are really met. Our food, our money, our budget, our talents, our building, our gifts, our education, all of these things, they are only means of service and ministry. But the supplier of these things, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he does not have the limitations that you and I have. Sometimes we, th we see through the lens of the means rather than through Christ who supplies. And when we see through the means, we see limitation after limitation after limitation. But Christ, he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And it's coming to that point of trust, deep trust, that you are able, O oh God. Well, verse 17 tells us that the disciples say to Jesus, we have only five loaves here and two fish. It turns out that the loaves and fish are not the disciples in the first place. I think they're uh, in the ownership of a young boy. 
John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 8, says that Andrew said to Jesus, well, there's a boy here who has five loaves and two fish. But what are, what are they for so many people? No one would have ever thought that day that the Lord Jesus would have used someone so seemingly insignificant and something so meager to satisfy so many. No one would have ever thought that what this little boy was carrying in his basket would be setting up one of the greatest moments and sermons that Jesus ever preached that we have recorded. John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. God will use what is small and insignificant if we offer it to him in trust, in faith. Use what I have, O Lord. Use what I have. And what does Jesus say in verse 19? Have the people sit down. Have them sit down on the grass. 5,000 men plus women and children. Some estimate 8,000, 10,000 people. That's a massive, massive crowd. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is starting to draw attention to himself. Because that's what the people need. It's what we need. Attention now, eyes now are being drawn to him. And he takes the bread and he takes the fish. He offers prayer and he breaks the bread. And not only are the people satisfied and filled but Matthew, I think, is setting up the reader for what is to come as the, as the gospel goes on to the night before Christ's crucifixion when he takes the bread, he gives thanks, and he says, this is my body, which is for you. In John's gospel, the scene leads right into our Lord's sermon, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus not only gives to us food, but he satisfies us by giving to us himself. Well, that is the good news of the gospel. Sometimes in our lives... Life looks like five loaves and two fish and nothing more. The future looks in doubt or you're tired and worn in life or your marriage or your family or relationships feel broken or stretched or you're unsure how your needs are going to be met. And yet Christ is saying to us, I am the bread of life. Come to me, be fed, be satisfied, be content in me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are and how you have revealed yourself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that indeed you are able to do far more abundantly all that, than all that we think or can ask. Lord, may you bring us daily to that point of deep trust, where we indeed see our own limitations, yet we see your great worth, your sufficient grace, your great power at work within us. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us 
not only physically, but spiritually as your church. That we would see your um, limitless power, O God. Give us that lens uh, to live, Lord, that sees faith in you before limitations. We thank you, Lord, that Christ is indeed the bread of life, and that he was crucified, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that in him we have life and life everlasting. And we thank you, Lord, that this bread of life brings your people together to be one in you. And we pray all these things with thanks in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.